the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. I want to apologize. My voice is a little scratchy. I've had a bit of a throat issue, but that's uh, that's getting better. So please indulge me, if you will, for just the next day or two. James Blend is producing today's program, Clark Hilton Engineering, and Dan Rice has given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. But of course, that will draw to a close this Friday when James and I will be in studio at KPDQ broadcasting live in real time. I hope we can remember how to do it, James. I think it'll come back to us once we once we arrive. Today I'm looking forward to a conversation with Pastor Rich Jones. He's the senior pastor of Calvary Chapel Worship Center in Hillsboro. We're going to talk about whether or not church attendance is still relevant and the impact that the pandemic has had on the church in general. So Pastor Rich will join us in the second hour of today's program. Tomorrow we're going to talk with Pastor Scott Gilchrist. We'll have a similar conversation, but we'll also include the downtown Bible class and whether or not the pandemic will allow uh, the downtown Bible class to resume meeting in the near term. So we'll get the update on that as well as talk about um, the pandemic's pandemic's impact on the church. So that's coming up uh, tomorrow with Pastor Scott Gilchrist. Well, of course, this weekend was the celebration of America's birthday, Independence Day, the 4th of July, 1776. Every year on this date, Americans celebrate what essentially is something of a miracle, the founding of the United States of America. The Declaration of Independence has 1,337 eloquent words. It was crafted by Thomas Jefferson and the 56 members of the Second Continental Congress. Now, those words turned the world upside down. I know there are many critics of Thomas Jefferson and others who were instrumental in the Declaration of Independence, but I think if we're all judged on a scale in which we recognize we are flawed in ways that uh, perhaps uh, we would rather not be remembered by, maybe we can give them a bit of grace. Well, to this day, our Declaration of Independence is the only seminal document of any nation on earth to pay homage to Almighty God. Now, think about that for a moment. Uh, considering where we are today in terms of our acknowledgement of God's grace that has been shed upon this nation, this is the only, the Declaration of Independence, the only seminal document of any nation on earth to pay homage to God Almighty. No other founding instrument reflects on the laws of nature and of nature's God, nor does any other proclaim all people are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And as there is an effort to uh, deconstruct the uh, the constitutional republic we have benefited by and live in, part of the reason for that is the homage that's been paid to Almighty God to do away with that, uh, with that notion. Well, no other nation's uh, manuscripts appeal to the supreme judge of the world for the uh, rectitude of our intentions, uh, nor does any such proclamation place the fate of its founders in the hands of God with a prayer. With the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. 
end quote. Now, there's no nothing unusual about those who are fighting for a cause, appealing to the God that they embrace, but to enshrine that in the manuscripts, the national manuscript is unusual. Well, the founders' stirring prose, their affirmation of self-evident God-given truths, and their carefully constructed bill of particulars, listing 27 tyrannical offenses perpetuated by Britain's monarch, are without parallel in justifying independence. And there is more. The extraordinary assertion, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. In 1776, it was one thing to express those con- uh, those concepts rather on parchment, but quite another to make them reality. Standing in the way of uh, achieving the founders' vision was the largest, best equipped, and best trained military, land, and sea forces in the world. This was a daunting challenge. Well, the Americans, on the other hand, had no army, no navy, just patriots determined to be free. Now, there's much that could be said about that. In that, my family did not begin free in this country, but it was uh, documents like the Declaration of Independence and others that ultimately were the underpinnings of the freedom we now enjoy as well. Well, the reason our country even exists today can be summarized in one word, sacrifice. The founders, General George Washington's intrepid citizen soldiers, risked everything for freedom. Now, again, it's difficult perhaps for us to fully appreciate what that means for those who serve in our nation's military today who have given up their freedom in order to protect and preserve what we enjoy in this country, perhaps can understand what we make reference to. But for the rest of us, I think we we really struggle to fully appreciate what has what was done at that time. All 56 visionaries who signed the Declaration of Independence, they were declared to be traitors to the British crown. They were tried in absentia. They were hunted, hounded, and sentenced to death if caught. Fourteen of the signers didn't live to celebrate the victory over the British at Yorktown. Uh, That was in Virginia on Friday, October 19, 1781. But by then, Washington's citizen soldiers, they'd endured seven years of starvation, crippling wounds, frostbite, disease, exhaustion, uh, continual defeats, uh, yet persevered to win American independence. That's what we celebrated on Sunday, although the federal holiday fell on a Monday. And I hope we, um, if we haven't done so, I hope we can take just a few minutes to consider the uh, miraculous beginning of the constitutional republic that we now know as the United States of America. Well, America's vaccination campaign is stalling. In late June, pharmacists, other providers were admitting roughly 800,000 shots a day. That's down 80 percent from a peak of more than 4.6 million in mid-April. Well, because of this precipitous decline, the Biden administration recently admitted it was going to miss its self-imposed, rather arbitrary goal of vaccinating at least 70 percent of American adults by Independence Day. So far, only 66% have gotten the jab, as they refer to it. Well, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention deserve much of the blame for this plummeting vaccination rate. Public health officials have botched their pandemic response. They're messaging nearly every step of the way, inadvertently stoking skepticism of the vaccines. And then, of course, a vaccine that's rushed. Um, in and of itself, has uh, raised some skepticism among many. Well, take the CDC's worst mistake, its decision in partnership with the Food and Drug Administration to pause the use of Johnson & Johnson's COVID-19 vaccine for 10 days because of a risk of blood clots. The risk ended up being less than one in a million. 
Now, you might look at that as a, a botched decision, but in the absence of clear information to determine whether or not this was going to be widespread, I'm not sure that was the worst mistake. Nonetheless, that overreaction triggered an immediate drop in public trust in the vaccine. Immediately after the CDC advised halting the Johnson & Johnson shot, the number of daily first doses of all vaccines administered plummeted by some 40 percent compared with the week earlier. Now, again, I'm not sure you can, uh, with great confidence, tether that to the decision to postpone the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. But nonetheless, many suggest that the, the uh, one followed the other. Well, recent data have confirmed just how damaging that choice was. According to recent polling, more than 40 percent of unvaccinated Americans say that their biggest concern is that the Johnson & Johnson shot caused blood clots. More than one quarter believe that every vaccine causes blood clots. So they extrapolated from that one out to the others. Well, this poor decision making has been the norm for the the, uh, CDC since the beginning of the pandemic. The agency's uh, guidance seemed to have been motivated more by armchair psychology than by hard data. Well, there's no shortage of examples. Recall that in the pandemic's earliest days, the CDC blocked doctors and labs from testing for the virus despite a suspicious upswing in people with symptoms consistent with COVID-19. Well, the CDC's own COVID-19 test released in early February of last year ended up being dangerously flawed. Weeks passed before the agency permitted private labs to start making better tests. In early April of 2020, when the virus was quilling a thousand Americans every day, the CDC declared, you do not need to wear a face mask. The very next day, officials changed their mind. Americans need to wear a cloth face cover. The CDC said this flip-flop was based on new science showing that patients could be infected and contagious for several days before having symptoms. Yet studies have determined that as early as... um, February of 2020, that was the right course to take, although there's still some controversy over the efficacy of face masks. Well, critics have tried to pin all this confusion on former President Trump, but the CDC's record since President Biden's inauguration has not improved. Well, in February of this year, CDC's guidance on reopening schools uh, miss. um, misleadingly cherry-picked data to reach uh, predetermined conclusions secretly written by lobbyists for teachers' unions. In April, the agency issued new mask guidance that mentioned that less than 10% of COVID-19 infections were occurring outdoors. That was technically true, but highly misleading. The data showed that the real number was below 1% and potentially much lower. In fact, as New York Times columnist David Leonhard noted, There's not a single documented COVID infection anywhere in the world from casual outdoor interactions, such as walking past someone on the street or eating at a nearby table. Well, it's no wonder public confidence in the agency is, well, low. Barely half of the country trusts it as a great, uh, trusts it rather, a great deal. And one in five Americans don't trust it at all. That's according to a recent poll from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Well, that distrust is concerning. After all, the more confusion the CDC sows, the more Americans will be reluctant to follow its recommendations in the future. And now um, that'll create major problems when the next pandemic inevitably, invariably arrives. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just want to remind you in the second hour of today's program, we'll talk with Pastor Rich Jones, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel Worship Center in Hillsboro. We're going to talk about church attendance in the wake of the pandemic. Is it still relevant? And are people going to return to church? What does the scripture have to say? That's coming up with Pastor Jones in the second hour of today's program. Well, we now know that the number of people in Oregon who died during the historic heat wave that started last month has grown to 107, according to the state medical examiner. Well, the majority of deaths reported by the state so far are in Multnomah County, Oregon's most populous county. At least 67 people here uh, have died due to uh, heat since June 25th. Marion County has reported 13 deaths. Clackamas County. Uh, reported 11 deaths. Washington County has reported nine. Deschutes County has reported two deaths. Lynn County has reported two deaths. And Columbia, Umatilla, and Polk counties have reported one death each. Well, the number of deaths could continue to grow as counties report more information. Well, the heat wave began on Friday, the 25th of June. Portland set new heat records on three consecutive days, peaking at 116 degrees on the 28th. In Multnomah County, most of the people who died had underlying health conditions, according to officials. The majority had died in their homes with no fans or air conditioning. Their preliminary cause of death is hypothermia, uh, hypothermia which is um, a rather interesting diagnosis when you think about what hypothermia is typically understood to, uh, to be. Between 2017 and 2019, there were only 12 deaths from hypothermia statewide, so this was dramatic. Clackamas County officials said at least nine of the 11 reported deaths were people who died in their homes. Uh, they either had no air conditioning or had air conditioners that were not working. One person who died was living in their vehicle. Oregon Governor Kate Brown on Thursday tweeted that she was heartbroken to learn that Oregonians had died. She said her office is working with state agencies to gather more information. During the heat wave, Multnomah County opened three 24-hour cooling shelters, which likely saved lives. An estimated 1,000 people stayed in the county cooling centers during the Portland area's three-day extreme record-breaking heat. In southwest Washington, the Clark County Medical Examiner's Office there estimated 5 to 10 people died due to the heat and has not yet updated that estimate. So uh, among our neighbors, a significant number uh, died as a result of these extreme temperatures. It's always a great idea, particularly if you have the elderly living near your home or those you know to be unwell, to make sure that they have sufficient uh, cooling in their uh, in their homes uh, to survive these kinds of weather events, which for us is so unusual. Perhaps we're just learning. Well, remember when the president said that if we obey his decrees, he would give us permission to gather in small groups to make this Independence Day something special? Well, what's special about Independence Day, of course, is that it celebrates the American Revolution against a government that was decreeing how we should live our lives. Well, despite coming up short of the president's widely touted COVID vaccination goal that uh, 70 percent of American adults vaccinated by Independence Day, he proclaimed we're closer than ever to declaring our independence from a deadly virus. And the White House instead uh, rather insisted that the administration had succeeded beyond our highest expectations at 66%, which of course falls short of 70. Well, the real number, 67%, so I guess I misspoke, 67% of Americans have been vaccinated, about 8 million shy of this goal. During his 4th of July remarks, the president called vaccination the most patriotic thing you can do. 
We're guessing at least a few of the 33 percent who declined to get the shot would disagree. Unfortunately, the president has politicized the vaccine in many ways. For instance, last week when it became apparent he wouldn't make his goal, he shifted blame for the failure on what else? Racism. Well, there's a reason why it's been harder to get African-Americans initially vaccinated, the president opined, because they're used to being experimented on, the Tuskegee Airmen and others. People have uh, memories. People have long memories. The president also contended that Hispanic Americans have uh, been hard to convince to get vaccinated because they're worried that they're going to be vaccinated and deported, implying that most Hispanics in the country are here illegally. So according to the president, all Hispanics are illegal immigrants and have uh, been reluctant to get the shot for that reason. Well, the White House sought to promote another alternative uh, narrative for the reason it came up short with the president's Fourth of July goal, and that would be young people. The reality is many younger people have felt that COVID-19 is not something that impacts them, and they've been less eager to get the shot. Well, naturally, the White House has, has been uh, quick to claim it's not moving the uh, the goalposts. It's less about the number and more about does America look like America again? Have we protected some of our most vulnerable? Not only is the answer yes, but we've done it faster than we anticipated, end quote. Well, that's classic political spin designed to uh, distract from the fact that the president uh, didn't meet the goal. And let's not forget that the only reason Biden was even able to uh, put forward a vaccination goal was because multiple vaccines were developed in record time under the previous administration, with nearly a million Americans a day receiving COVID uh, COVID vaccines rather by the time Biden entered office. Well, the lion's share of the uh, vaccination credit goes to Trump, not Biden, despite the uh, latter disgrace attempts to claim the credit, but that's politics as we've known it. Meanwhile, the mainstream media touts China's having administered one billion vaccine doses as if the Chinese people have a choice in the matter. In totalitarian government systems like the one controlled by the Chinese Communist Party, individuals have no freedom to challenge or resist government dictates. Well, individual freedom is a fundamental feature of the American system of government. Not a bug to be eradicated, as the left media regularly insinuates, that Americans are free without government coercion to choose whether or not they want to get vaccinated is only a problem for those wishing to exert control. To diminish and ridicule people's liberty to choose is an attack, the very spirit, uh, to attack the very spirit of America. Well, the still-standing portion of the partially collapsed condo building in Surfside, Florida, was brought down using explosives on Sunday night. The move occurred after 10 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 days after the shocking collapse of much of the residential Champlain Tower structure on the 24th of June that resulted in 27 confirmed deaths, with 121 people still unaccounted for, according to Miami-Dade County officials. County Mayor Danielle Levine Cava said the demolition of the remaining portion of the building was a necessary step for crews to continue their search for any possible survivors of that disaster. Bringing down this building in a controlled manner is critical to expanding the scope of the search and rescue effort, Cava told reporters at a news conference, according to the Associated Press. Search crews resumed sifting through the rubble after they received an all-clear signal from site managers uh, managers rather, following the demolition. Cava, the mayor, and other officials have pledged that search efforts will continue in hopes of finding survivors, even though the odds of finding anyone still alive after more than a week were not favorable. A judge has denied a Florida pet advocate 
um, request rather to search for missing animals prior to the condo demolition. And Miami Beach emergency personnel honored the Surfside collapse victims with a light ceremony. And a Surfside manager pushed back on reports of delayed condo repairs. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, again, the um, I should say not again, but Cori Bush has slammed the 4th of July, claiming that black people still aren't free. Now, as a black person, I can tell you he's wrong. I am free. Uh, one Democratic lawmaker and several left-wing figures used the 4th of July to share controversial statements or to disparage the founding of the United States. Not surprising in 2021. Democrat Representative Cory Bush, a Democrat from Missouri, tweeted out, When they say that the 4th of July is about American freedom, remember this. The freedom they're referring to is for white people. This land is stolen land and black people still aren't free. So much that could be said. Former MSNBC anchor Tour was far more vocal tweeting uh, using an expletive, Independence Day. Not only were we not free, the whole reason the colonies so wanted independence was because Britain was moving toward abolishing slavery, which, of course, was not the case. Why would black people celebrate a day so wrapped up in our enslavement? He also tweeted uh, out his own opinion piece for the website, the Grio, titled, well, expletive 4th of July. The only Independence Day I recognize is Juneteenth. Well, it was on the... Um, Declaration of Independence and other founding documents that ultimately the freedom of once enslaved blacks and others in this country was uh, was won. And of course, the Civil War was involved in that um, negotiation. News organizations also took the opportunity to use the holiday to criticize the United States and its history. Let's not let any holiday go to waste is apparently the new mantra. Well, a black veteran celebrated the U.S. saying you're not born into a caste in this country. You're born into opportunity. And a liberal city's noise curfew forced a major uh, league baseball team to cancel their freedom fireworks. Fireworks burst across the sky as the U.S. marked its 245th birthday. Of course, not in Oregon and parts of Washington. Wildfire threats forced Western cities to ban Fourth of July fireworks. The New York Times has been hit by critics and lawmakers for suggesting the U.S. flag is now alienating to some. And Blue Angels and Thunderbirds, well, they took to the skies as the patriotic air show made a spectacular return. The NYPD released a chilling video of a New York City home break-in amid an historic crime wave. The New York City police have released a chilling video showing a suspect breaking into a Manhattan residence and having a look around. The break-in happened on the 24th of June, just before 1.15 a.m. in the vicinity of Central Park West and West 98th Street, the New York uh, Police Department says. A home surveillance camera shows the suspect creeping across the foyer of the residence with a door left ajar behind him. He appears to mill about, checking out rooms and opening doors. Meanwhile, Walt Disney World's... um, Greeting for its Magic Kingdom fireworks show has been changed to more inclusive by removing gendered language. The theme park's narration no longer says, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and has been replaced by the phrase, good evening, dreamers of all ages. Now, ages, is that offensive to somebody? Because that's got to go. This was during the pre-show announcement. Well, this change was revealed uh, the evening of the 29th of June when Disney cast members received a preview for the new fireworks show 
according to um, Faithwire. A spokesperson for Disney told CBS News that the move is part of a broader effort to be more inclusive, adding it's not about one or two things. Social media users have had mixed reactions to the change, with some celebrating it and others criticizing the progressive move from tradition. My understanding is there are only ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. There are only two sexes. Whatever you decide you want to fall, what category you want to fall into, I suppose we could argue that. But the nightly fireworks show in the Magic Kingdom over the iconic Cinderella Castle in Orlando, Florida, was officially reintroduced on Thursday after hiatus of over a year due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Disney announced in April that inclusion, uh, inclusion rather, was added to its fifth key to um, guide cast members in interacting with guests. The other four keys are safety, courtesy, show, and efficiency. At least nine Catholic and Anglican churches across Canada have gone up in flames amid a backlash over the country's use of church-run residential schools to forcibly assimilate indigenous children from the late 19th century to the 1970s. The majority of the church fires occurred on indigenous First Nations land. The recent discoveries of hundreds of unmarked graves at former residential schools within that, um, uh, the last month appear to have made churches a target. Historically, more than 150,000 First Nation children were required to attend state-funded Christian schools as part of a program to assimilate them into Canadian society. They were forced to convert to Christianity and not allowed to speak their native language. Many were beaten, verbally abused, and up to 6,000 are said to have died. And while it's unclear how the children buried in the unmarked graves died, the discovery of their remains has ignited anger among First Nations communities across the uh, the country, and we're talking about Canada. The majority of the church fires have targeted Catholic churches. Search crews who resumed their work after a still-standing portion of the partially collapsed condo building in Surfside, Florida, was brought down using explosives Sunday night, found three more bodies. The death toll is now standing at 27, with 118 people still unaccounted for, according to the Miami-Dade officials speaking to family members. Two of the victims recovered on Sunday were identified as Ingrid Ainsworth, 66, and Zivi Ainsworth, 67. The demolition occurred at about 10 p.m. Eastern time, 11 days after the shocking collapse of the much of much rather of the residential Champlain Towers, the structure on the 24th. The county uh, mayor said that the demolition of the remaining portion of the building was a necessary step for crews to continue their search for any possible survivors of that disaster, although it's rather clear at this point that it's very unlikely that there will be more survivors. At least nine Canadian churches were set ablaze. Texas prison inmates escaped, escaped rather on the 4th of July, taking independence rather literally. And a Boston rabbi says it's a miracle. He survived a stab attack. The deadly St. Louis area mall shooting suspect has been arrested, according to police. Well, the stomach-churning number of hot dogs Joey Chestnut ate set a new world record. I don't even want to know. Former President uh, Trump failed to mention uh, Governor DeSantis at his Florida rally. Oops. China has expanded its influence, warning rival nations of bloodshed. Well, Target and Walgreens closed early due to thefts in their California stores. 
In some areas, of course, shoplifting is no longer a crime. And China has expanded its influence, warning rival nations of bloodshed. A Suez Canal Authority says, I just repeated that. I realize it. I'm not senile. Target and Walgreens uh, <clears throat> closed early, repeating that as well. A Suez Canal Authority says a deal had been reached to free a seized vessel and met opera has reached an agreement with locked-out stagehands. Well, China ordered uh, DD app downloads, suspender um, over data violations, or suspended, I think is uh, correct. Uh, Saudi Arabia has pushed back on the UAE opposition to the OPEC Plus deal. Well, Senator Cruz is excoriating Cory Bush's stolen land tweet as divisive lies. The senator from Texas excoriated squad member Representative Cory Bush, the Democrat from Missouri, on Monday for her divisive lies in response to her controversial tweet over the weekend, which claimed that the United States is stolen land and that black Americans are not free. The Texas Republican tore into the progressive Democrats' widely panned tweet, torching it as being full of hate and telling Americans to start believing people on the left when they say they hate the country. Hateful, divisive lies, Cruz wrote on Monday. The left hates America, believe them when they tell you this, end quote. Well, Cruz pointed out that former NFL quarterback Colin uh, Kaepernick, he tried to spread the same lies on the 4th of July two years ago and shared a link to an article from July of 2019 highlighting his tweets pushing back against Kaepernick at that time. Bush turned heads on Sunday when she claimed in a post about Independence Day that black people in America still aren't free. Uh, when they say that the 4th of July is about American freedom, remember this. The freedom they're referring to is for white people, the lawmakers wrote. This land was stolen land and black people still aren't free. Of course, the uh, sitting member of Congress who happens to be black and was free to write those words doesn't acknowledge her own freedom to do just that. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you in the five o'clock hour, looking forward to a conversation with Pastor Rich Jones. He's senior pastor at Calvary Chapel Worship Center in Hillsboro. We're going to talk about whether or not the church uh, is relevant. Church attendance is relevant post pandemic. I know for most of us, we didn't have the opportunity to attend church with uh, our brothers and sisters with whom we share a pew, a seat, or where, however we uh, gather. And it's been about a year and a half. Are we prepared to go back to church? Do we recognize the value of it? Or is this going to be a new trend in which people just go for live streams? I mean, it might um, be an argument for ending live streams to force people back into, <laughs> into the church uh, where we all belong. Anyway, we'll talk with um, Pastor Rich Jones about that in just a bit. Well, the Lambda variant, which is uh, believed to have been first detected in Peru about a year ago, and we're talking about a COVID variant, is a new concern to scientists who say mutations could potentially be resistant to COVID-19 vaccines. The World Health Organization said the variant's mutations could increase its transmissibility or possibly increase its resistance to neutralizing antibodies. Well, the health body called Lambda L-A-M-B-D-A, or C-37, a variant of interest. Well, so far, we've seen no indication that the Lambda variant is more aggressive. That's a um, quote from a World Health Organization virologist. Uh, It's possible that it may exhibit higher infectious rates, uh, but we do not yet have enough reliable data to compare it to Gamma or Delta. Those are other variants that we're 
uh, that we're facing. He told the German outlet that SARS-CoV-2, it may start to become more transmissible, but not as deadly. So looking at the future, these are concerns that are being evaluated. In other developments, a Texas bookstore owner shared a letter from a customer claiming mask requirements would lead to new Jim Crow practices, kind of a true troll, a two tier system in which, you know, maybe not the mask as much as the vaccine, but in which one group of people who's been vaccinated or those who are willing to wear masks are given certain rights and privileges while others are not. Well, the Pfizer vaccine protection against infection declines to 64% in Israel, and GOP lawmakers are split over mandatory vaccines for U.S. military members. Well, the U.S. left the Bagram Air Base in the dead of night without telling the new Afghan commander and the switchover and the surrender of Afghan troops was rather alarming. A Russian plane is missing. 28 people are believed to have been on board. A violent 4th of July resulted in dozens being shot and several killed. The Keystone XL pipeline owner is seeking $15 billion after Biden blocked the permit. A Bitcoin mining operation in Finger Lakes has sparked local concerns. And more Americans are suing states for the early end to federal unemployment benefits. While flight cancellations are mounting as the U.S. continues to break air travel records. 100 were shot, 18 fatally in weekend shootings across Chicago. State of emergency has been declared there. And a New York City crime wave triggered a rethink um, of the policing changes. Well, the Biden administration is being mocked after touting July 4th cookouts will cost 16 cents less in 2021. Exhibit A, gas prices hit seven-year high. Exhibit B, thanks to inflation, back-to-school prices are expected to skyrocket. But you'll pay or did pay 16 cents less for your cookout than 2021. Well, regrettably, the Supreme Court of the United States has declined to hear the case of a florist sued for not serving a same-sex wedding, Baronel, um, Baronet um, Stutzman. A laptop shows Joe Biden attended meetings between Hunter Biden and his Mexican business partners, things that were denied earlier. And Peter Daszak, a major funder of the Wuhan lab, has refused the White House request for documents. Well, adding insult to injury, U.S. taxpayers may have to pay $15 billion in damages to the Canadian firm that Biden's Uh, Because Biden canceled the pipeline, lest you thought that it might come out of the president's own pocket. Dumb and dumber. Facebook is being roasted for blocking the hashtag revolution on Independence Day weekend, according to The Washington Times. And Facebook is warning users of so-called extremism as conservatives slam Orwellian thought police. So apparently Independence Day was banned or over the weekend. YouTube removed videos exposing China's abuse of Uyghurs as well. Well, in the broken system, the deportation backlog is now nearly three years for the average case. And between 800 and 1,500 companies have been potentially affected by a ransomware attack. Harbinger Bagram Airfield was looted as U.S. forces slipped away in the night. Well, the State Department rightly backed Iranian protesters And woke Disney theme parks dropped boys and girls salutations from their fireworks show. The nation's largest teachers union says it's going to teach critical race theory in all 50 states and 14,000 school districts. So if you're wondering if it applies to you and your district, the answer will be yes. 
according to the nation's largest teachers' union. Tropical storm Elsa has time to strengthen before reaching Florida, and Alan West has announced he's running against Texas Governor Greg Abbott in the Republican primary. Virginia Democrat gubernatorial nominee Terry McAuliffe is touting an endorsement from an anti-Israel group. Apparently, that's something he's proud of. Well, Afghan soldiers, rather, are fleeing into uh, bordering nations as the Taliban advances, and Tajikistan has mobilized some 20,000 reservists to bolster their border with Afghanistan to prevent people from flooding over the border. Chinese state media published a three-stage plan for invading Taiwan. Reason for concern. Some House Democrats are bashing the U.S. on the 4th of July. Cori Bush insisted this land is stolen land and black people still aren't free. She was joined by a bizarre, ignorant tweet from California Democrat Maxine Water, who complained the July 4th. And so the Declaration of Independence says all men are created equal. Equal to what? What men? Only white men? Isn't it something that they wrote this in 1776 when African-Americans were enslaved? They weren't thinking about us then, but we're thinking about us now. Well, of course, if you understand history, that sort of a nonsensical uh, statement. Ted Cruz says the left hates America. Believe them when they tell you this. Chicago, 93 shots, 16 killed in the latest violence surge. And the French president is blaming dangerous woke culture on migrating U.S. citizens. When uh, even the French don't like your leftism, it's really gone too far. Well, San Francisco's uh, Target stores are closing early as shoplifting continues. The story notes Walgreens has already closed several stores for the same reason, and security guards like Kevin Greathouse has told... um, are being told, rather, not to physically engage with those shoplifting. In the article, the city seems confused as to why it's happening. But it's a growing problem that started when they uh, lowered the penalty for stealing. Break-ins are also skyrocketing in San Francisco. A senior official in the San Francisco District Attorney's Office compared uh, concern over the crime to white supremacy. Everything boils down to race. Well, the Olympics uh, have bowed to pressure. They're going to allow some athletic protests during the Games. The story notes the IOC is allowing athletes to demonstrate before their events begin, so long as the message isn't disruptive, which the committee describes as physical interference of another athlete causing physical harm to another person or property occurring during another team's national anthem or interfering with another athlete's concentration, end quote. Well, one uh, columnist says a Supreme Court decision stops the left's doxing those with whom they disagree. And Strassel explains that the decision in America's for Prosperity Foundation versus Bonte is a direct result of the left's bullying behavior. Well, Amazon is selling child sex dolls. What's worse, a mother discovered one was a replica of her own eight-year-old daughter. The story focuses on that horrible aspect but seems indifferent to the fact that Amazon would sell those dolls to begin with. And, of course, they're selling them to adults. Rod Dreher points out this is why we, um, why you should never put photos of your children on Facebook or anywhere else on the Internet. They are no longer your own. Well, Bill Cosby um, says a documentary is in the works. He says he's working with Michelle Major on a documentary reportedly to be produced by Lionsgate Entertainment about his case. According to the former sitcom star, it's almost complete, and Cosby only needs to sit for his interview, which should occur in the next few weeks. Rather interesting. Well, on this day in history, 1535, Sir Thomas More is executed in England for high treason. 
1854, and of course that meant he wouldn't give his consent for the king to marry another wife. 1854, an anti-slavery conviction, a convention rather, is held at Under the Oaks in Jackson, Michigan. The convention results in the founding of the Republican Party's original platform and the first slate of candidates, the anti-slavery convention. 1933, the first uh, Major League Baseball All-Star Game is held in Chicago. 1942, Anne Frank, her parents and sister, enter a secret annex in an Amsterdam building where they were later joined by four other people. They hide um, from Nazi occupiers for two years before being discovered and arrested. On this day in history, 1945, President Harry S. Truman signs an executive order establishing the Medal of Freedom. And 1957, Althea Gibson becomes the first black tennis player to win a Wimbledon singles title as she defeats fellow American Darlene Hard, 6-3-6-2. Finally, on this day in history, 2018, the United States and China impose tariffs on billions of dollars of each other's goods in what Beijing calls the biggest trade war in economic history. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show, in which I'm looking forward to a conversation with Pastor Rich Jones, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel Worship Center in Hillsboro. We're going to talk about church attendance following the pandemic. Is it still relevant? Is it biblical? Do we need to think about it and do it? That's coming up with Pastor Rich. He'll join us in our next couple of segments. Well, parents in an affluent Virginia county are speaking out against their school system's online portal that allows students to anonymously report on each other for exhibiting racial or sexual bias. Daniel Sewer is an attorney representing parents in a lawsuit against the Loudoun County school system. Now, Loudoun County has been in the news quite a bit for its CRT training. Um, the so-called bias incident response system is in direct violation of Americans' free speech rights. Rather than creating a divisive community where students are welcomed, Sur said, Loudon is saying to students, if you come from a particular background or if you come to a school with particular views and values, you're not welcome here. In fact, if you share those views and values with your classmates, we will shut you down. And that violates two promises of the Constitution. The promise all of us, including students, have to free speech and security in the 14th Amendment, that all of us will receive equal treatment under the law, regardless of our race, the parents' lawyer added. Well, five, uh, five parents filed a lawsuit in early uh, June against the Loudoun County School Board for violating the free speech rights of students. We've seen these biased reporting systems in higher ed before, but they've never been pre uh, prevalent in K through 12 level. I think Loudoun is one of the first places in the country where children as young as sixth grade are subject to a reporting system like this, the attorney said. Uh, Sewer is a senior attorney at Liberty Justice Center, which represents the parents in the lawsuit against the school board. The center says it works to... Um, protect students, families, entrepreneurs, and other Americans whose fundamental constitutional rights have been violated. Loudoun County Public Schools set up the portal, which Liberty Justice Center says is uh, technically a Google form. Uh, administrators implemented the reporting system this spring in the county's middle schools and high schools. To use the online system, any student can log in and with 
uh, with a student account. The format doesn't require a name to complete the report, so you can't link the report to a particular student. Complaints are reviewed initially by a supervisor of equity, then by equity ambassadors, according to the Liberty Justice Center. The school system has not said how widely the reports will be circulated. Well, parents filed a lawsuit against the Loudoun County School Board shortly before the board decided to appeal a judge's uh, decision, a judge's order to reinstate an elementary school gym teacher suspended by the school system for saying he wouldn't call children who identify as transgender by their preferred names or pronouns. The teacher, um, Byron Cross, had expressed his opinion during a public comment portion in which people were invited to share their opinions of the school board's May 25th meeting. Well, the Loudoun County school system has become a prominent example of how critical race theory, so-called anti-race, and what many parents consider a radical transgender agenda are taking hold in public schools across the nation. A press release about the parents' lawsuit from Liberty Justice Center says that over the past two years, the school board and administrators have incorporated controversial and radical political theory into school curriculum. Now, you might recall that earlier in the program, I mentioned that the largest uh, teachers union in the country has indicated they plan to teach critical race theory in every school in the United States and every school district across the country. Now, the um, Liberty uh, law firm, uh, in referring to the Loudoun County, the Liberty Justice uh, Center, referring to the Loudoun County school system, added, uh, now they are asking students to be vocal supporters of the political views or face being excluded from school leaders uh, leadership positions and reported through a new bias reporting system. So you have students who can report on a fellow student without identifying themselves. So they're not accountable for the report they have submitted through this portal. But the person that is being uh, identified has no recourse. Uh, you can't go back and face your accuser. You don't know who that individual is or what their true motivation might be. And you're talking about students from sixth grade on in elementary school. Can they be trusted uh, to report on one another uh, based on real incidents? Or might they just be mad because you said, no, you're not interested in being my girlfriend? I mean, they're, it's so fraught with, with problems. And that being, of course, the least of them. Well, um, Wade uh, Bayard, who's a public information officer for Loudoun County Public Schools, said the school system doesn't um, comment on pending litigation. So they're not commenting on this system or their, the parents who are opposed to it. Um, the, one of the mothers of a high school student and the named plaintiff in the parent's suit is quoted by Liberty Justice Center in its press release in the case saying this. The school board has been trying to pretend discrimination and suppression of free speech isn't happening in our schools, but we see it in class lessons, in the books being promoted or banned in the library, and in the creation of the new school programs. Asur said the bias incident response system allows any student to report anonymously on any other student and ask that they be investigated for a comment made inside or outside of the school or on school media that someone finds inappropriate or offensive. And again, this is an anonymous report. You can't even hold that individual uh, accountable or require that they um, defend the uh, accusation that they've made. That's basically encouraging students to judge one another and to rat one another out on an ongoing basis. Whether or not it's credible is a whole other issue. Well, Sewer said he also thinks it would be difficult to ensure that only students are reporting on one another and are not being accused by teachers, parents, or others. Again, 
These reports are anonymous. The link was sent out to parents as well, Sewer said, adding, so it's really an incredible extension of the government's power over the lives of these students that no matter whether they are in or out of school or on social media, what they say can and will be used against them by people who are seeking to enforce this new ideology on the students and uh, are unwilling to tolerate any challenge or different view. Well, the lawyer said that the parents uh, he has worked with who are part of the lawsuit are more than frustrated by the situation. Our parents are fed up and fired up. They feel like the school district has not been listening to them. They feel like this shift in priorities away from college and career readiness and toward this new political ideology, this indoctrination, if you will, was not done with parents' feedback. With in-person learning largely shut down for the past year during the COVID-19 pandemic, he said, parents have been getting clued in on what their children are learning in school and how Loudoun County and other school systems are shaping children's political views. And it is certainly that. Uh, Sewer said parents are seeing what's happening in their schools and all of a sudden they're realizing, oh my gosh, and I'm quoting, I wouldn't necessarily say that myself, this is not what I thought my school was teaching my kids and this is antithetical to our values as a family and for that matter as a nation. So one upside, I suppose one could argue, of the pandemic and um, learning uh, from home is that parents are becoming painfully aware of what's actually being taught in uh, many cases. And so now they're getting engaged in going to school board meetings and trying to uh, bring back the school district with its fundamental mission uh, to prepare kids for college and career rather than pushing a political ideology. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court on Friday announced that it would decline uh, to review the case of a Christian florist in Washington state involving same-sex marriage, again punting on major constitutional questions involving religious freedom. Justice Neil Gorsuch, Clarence Thomas, and Samuel Alito expressed support for hearing the case, but to take a case requires the vote of at least four of the nine justices. In declining to hear the case of Arlene's Flowers versus Washington, it effectively upholds Washington State Supreme Court's ruling that Christian florist Baronel Stutzman, now in her 70s, mid-70s, uh, violated Washington's anti-discrimination law by refusing to design a floral arrangement for the same-sex wedding of Robert Ingersoll and Kurt Freed. Before the lawsuit, Stutzman and Ingersoll were friends. She had done all kinds of arrangements uh, for him, but was unwilling to do so for a wedding. And it continues. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll hear from Pastor Rich Jones, senior pastor at Calvary Chapel Worship Center in Hillsboro. Is the church attendance still relevant post-pandemic? We'll talk about that and more in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. And as promised, I've asked Pastor Rich Jones. He's senior pastor at Calvary Chapel Worship Center in Hillsboro. I've asked him to join us to talk about the pandemic, its impact on the church in general. And moving forward, is church attendance still relevant? What does the scripture have to say about meeting uh, together, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together? So we're going to get into all of that with uh, with Pastor Rich. Thank, or excuse me, Pastor Jones. Thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. You feel free to call me Pastor Rich or just even Rich is fine. <laughs> okay. Well, let me first um, just ask you to tell us a little bit about how um, Calvary Chapel Worship Center responded when the, the pandemic hit. 
uh, churches were required to make some pretty quick decisions about what to do with their congregations. How did you all respond when we were told um, that meeting in uh, church services with large numbers of people was no longer going to be permitted? Well, of course, it forced all the churches out there to go online and to provide services through online streaming only. And um, for a lot of churches that were not doing that already, it put them in a really difficult predicament because now they're scrambling to catch up with all the technology to make that possible. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, we had already been doing live streaming for many years and already had built a very strong foundation. So it was very... um, you might say easy because we'd already been doing it, but uh, I, I really felt terrible for the small and medium churches that were so struggling in those early days, particularly. So it was difficult, and uh, uh, we were very, very fortunate, as I say, that we had all that uh, ready to go. But it was uh, it was an interesting thing to watch because now, of course, people are are staying home. Uh, they're watching services in their jammies. Um, and, you know, some people were actually like, hey, we're kind of liking this. You know, this is, this is not so bad after all. We're sitting here with our family and, uh, you know, we can turn the volume up and uh, this is getting nice, you know. So it was, it was an interesting transition for sure. Yeah, it certainly was. And you're right, for smaller churches that hadn't been using the technology, the learning curve was a real challenge. Uh, to present what they would normally do on a Sunday morning uh, to their congregants who are now staying uh, staying at home. Did you have to adjust the way your service was was done when you live streamed? Now, you mentioned that you had been live streaming before, but did you have to make uh, adjustments to how you presented your Sunday mornings for the most part based on the fact that most of the congregation was no longer in the sanctuary? They're watching from home. Well, actually, when this first started, literally there was no one in the sanctuary because, you know, all gatherings were not allowed. And uh, so it was very difficult because as a pastor, you know, you're, you're, you're speaking to the camera. And that's not exactly the same dynamic as having mm-hmm. a, you know, church or sanctuary full of people. First of all, there's no one there to laugh at your jokes, <laughs> which you know. So I assume that they laugh at your jokes when they're in the sanctuary? (laughs) (laughs) That's a good question. Do they really? I don't know. But what we did was we brought the cameras, you know, closer. And and I tried to really understand, like, there are a lot of people behind that camera. I'm speaking directly to those people. And so the, the dynamic, you know, really changed, but it became intimate. And I think in many ways dynamic... We tried to keep it as normal as possible, so we kept the sanctuary. We kept, you know, the worship team in full. We tried to do everything to keep it as normal as, as possible, but it's pretty difficult when there's no one in the sanctuary, for sure. Mm-hmm. But it, it was, um, it, let's just say, interesting. I was glad when we could finally uh, have people back in the sanctuary, but as as you remember, I think we were only allowed to have maybe it was 50, I think, to start with yeah. uh, per service. And then it went down to 25. And uh, people are making reservations. And uh, it was very difficult to have 25 in a big room. That, that just was very difficult. But at the same time, hey, we're saving lives. And that's the way I, I felt about it. I think there was a, a number of per, uh, churches that were kind of casting off all 
uh, caution and and uh, but I just can't do it. I, I just have far too much concern, I think, for people's health. And we wanted to do what we could to keep people safe. <clears throat> but when the restrictions started to be lifted, we were so happy to bring yeah. people back because we need each other. We need church. We need to worship. We need to be together. Yeah, we are designed for that. Now, I know for many smaller churches, uh, they, they've they been devastated by the pandemic. They weren't able to continue, and many churches just simply had to to uh, close their doors. Um, how challenging was it for you to maintain relationship with congregants, not just as one large group, but with individual families and maintaining um, the the support that you um, that the church relies on to um, to keep staff going and to keep facilities uh, up and running was that a challenge for you to have not just the congregation as a whole coming together with a live stream, but somehow connecting as the church. Uh, in other ways that is typical when you're actually attending church? Well, it was almost impossible because without that being together, without being actually in person, you might say, we can't really have the same connections. And so it became a real difficult thing. How do you how do you uh, really even know what the needs are without them, you know, without them saying something? So it, it was very, very challenging. But you know, here's another interesting uh, factoid. It did also provide uh, present opportunities um, in the sense that now that you're on online, now that we're online uh, only, um, it created an opportunity to expand our reach. And uh, mm-hmm. I never expected this. If someone would have told me in advance what would happen, I, I would never have guessed it. Literally, people joined our church from all over the country and the world. I mean, literally joined, like being involved in small groups, in prayer groups. Uh, we had a gal from France who who uh, responded and said, this is my church. Is there anyone who can disciple me? So we connected her with one of our older gals, who is even today, <clears throat> a year and something later, is still meeting and discipling her. Um, we had a gal... Uh, join one of our small groups, and as people were introducing themselves, uh, the person said, oh, I'm from L.A. I'm literally in L.A., but this is my home church. That's amazing. It it was. And uh, people would send cards and letters from all over the country. Um, Again, I never would have expected that. But it's also, you know, there's another interesting aspect to it, which is that I think that it's part of the consumerism mentality of our nation and that people were able to very quickly kind of shop for other churches because you could you could be part of a church across the country just as easily as you could be part of a church in your community. And so people started looking for those services that were more full and robust and, you know, <clears throat> meeting their needs that way. And so for me, there were some advantages, but I was desperately looking forward to getting people back together again. We were very fortunate in uh, financially, people stepped up and understood that these are difficult times. And I've heard from many of my pastor friends who said people stepped up, people in their congregations, they, they stepped, 
stood up and and supported and I, I am so thankful for when this happened you know March uh, of last year my first thought was what are we going to do like we're, we don't have people in the sanctuary how are we going to even pay our bills but as I say it was in people stepped up I praise God for the heart of people who understood that church is important we must support it and uh, so praise God for that and I've heard from many pastors who said the same thing Well, that's encouraging to hear. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. When we return, I'd like to talk a little bit about what reopening the church. It was gradual, and as you mentioned earlier, in some cases, very few were allowed to attend a service at one time. We'll talk about uh, the controversy over masks and no masks and how challenging that might have been as well. Again, we're talking with Pastor Rich Jones. He's senior pastor at Calvary Chapel Worship Center in Hillsboro, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Pastor Rich Jones. He's senior pastor of Calvary Chapel Worship Center in Hillsboro, where they've been live streaming long before the pandemic. Uh, we're talking about church attendance before and after the pandemic and how relevant it is um, in the 21st century. Now, just before the break, I mentioned um, you know, returning to church when the governor allowed smaller numbers to attend church and then those numbers increased. Was there a challenge for you in terms of mass? Mask wearing as opposed to not mask wearing. Um, the church seemed to be, and I'm generalizing the church in general, uh, there seemed to be some controversy over whether or not people were willing to comply with the governor's wishes. Was that a challenge for you at all when Calvary Chapel uh, Worship Center began opening, reopening its doors? Well, challenge, yes. <clears throat> but we took a position that masks were important. And in fact, I put a video out to our, uh, our church at large. It was a YouTube video that did actually uh, get sent to many. But my position I took was that Christians should wear a mask. And the reason is Philippians 2. Do not look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That is the definition of humility. And masks, as we know, do work. They do help people from getting sick. So therefore, like my heart is to protect people. If we're praying for people to be healed, we ought to be praying for them to be also saved from uh, a virus. So I was all in. I think we 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 need to take a stand to make a, a leadership position on this. Now, at some point, you know, of course, uh, these all fell off and the restrictions <clears throat> got taken away. So praise God for that. But was it controversial? Yes, it was. Now, we actually did something different. Uh, I don't know any of the churches that approached it this way, but we actually put cafe tables in our sanctuary and allowed people to bring food and their drinks and whatnot. So they're sitting in the sanctuary, and when they're at the tables, they can take their mask off. So early on, we kind of had a bit of a compromise that way. Um, but we ask them to make sure that when they're greeting people, when they're standing up or singing, that they make sure they have their mask on. So we accommodated it. We made a compromise out of it. But at the same time, I felt compelled that we need to look out for the interests of others, not just our own personal selves. And I know a lot of it was political. And, and frankly, I'm not much of a political animal. I, I am. I'm just standing for the gospel. So if, if that makes sense, it was controversial, yeah, yes. But praise God that those restrictions are off. You know, here's another interesting thing. You might remember that 
all of these guidelines and restrictions on numbers and how many you can gather. At some point, if you remember, the governor actually changed all restrictions on churches and made them guidelines, and we're uh, not going to enforce them. And that happened uh, many months ago. So I think that kind of created an opportunity for churches to loosen up a little bit. Mm -hmm. But we still had to be very careful because this, you know, this was a real thing. This COVID was real. And it was making people a lot of sick, uh, a lot of people sick. So I really wanted to protect them. Yeah. So we worked our way through it. And fortunately now, of course, all restrictions are off. Now the question is, are they going to come back? Yeah, and I'm reading a number of studies suggesting that um, people are not going to return to church, that they've gotten comfortable with uh, attending church at home, uh, worshiping from the comfort of their own home. And I wanted to ask how um, how uh, members of Calvary Chapel Hillsborough, how they have responded. Are you seeing people return in numbers that you would have expected prior to the pandemic, or is it a slow uh, drip as we've seen in other places around the state? Well, actually, um, I predicted from the beginning that once we started to gather back together again, that it would be a slow roll. And uh, that is exactly what we're seeing. It's been, what, now 14, 16 months? I don't remember the exact number now, but it's been a long enough time that people have developed this pattern. They like being home watching the services. Um, It's very convenient, but there's something missing. It's not the same. Um, worship is not the same. Fellowship is not the same. Like we need that fellowship. We need that connection to our fellow brother in the Lord. We need to be in fellowship and pray together. What we have seen is that I would estimate maybe half, a little more than half have returned, um, which is not anywhere near what we would want to see, but Mm-hmm. It's gradually, every week is changing. At the same time, interestingly enough, we are finding many new families coming. So um, it's just an interesting dynamic. Who would have guessed uh, all of this would happen? But um, many of the people that I uh, that I thought would come back have not, and yet all these new people are coming. So it's very, very interesting. I think it's, frankly, I think it's going to be, couple more years before we really see people coming back the way they did before the pandemic. I think they're going to have to recognize the necessity of meeting, the need for fellowship, the need for praying together, the need for worshiping together. I think that until they miss that, they're going to just continue watching from home. Hmm. Um, One of the questions I wanted to put to you today is whether or not church attendance is is mandatory. Um, I, I think sometimes our felt need uh, trails behind what we should actually be doing because it's what we're uh, we're told that we ought to be doing. What does the scripture have to say about church attendance? I, I would agree with you. We are designed for the kind of fellowship that you uh, just described, but we may not, you know, feel like we live in America. We kind of do what we want whenever we want. Mm-hmm. And if you have mm-hmm. technology and that's an option, eh, next best thing. Uh, if we don't sense that need, if we don't feel it, what does the scripture say uh, that might guide us in making the decision? I'm I'm going to return to the fellowshipping with the saints as opposed to, um, you know, watching church in my skivvies. Well, you mentioned that scripture earlier, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together out of Hebrews. And that's exactly right. I think that is a directive 
of the Lord, do not forsake. That's a pretty strong word. <clears throat> and uh, therefore, I think it is the heart of the Lord that we would assemble, that we would be together for prayer and fellowship and connection because there's an encouragement. There is a strengthening together. You know, if you if you take a fire and you separate the embers of that fire, it's going to go out. It's gathering those embers together actually creates the intensity of that heat. And to me, it's an illustration of the church gathering together. There's an intensity in the scripture, excuse me, in the spirit that causes something to happen in the soul. You know, he inhabits the praises of his people where two or more are gathered. I am there in their midst. There's so many encouragements to gather, to worship, but also to encourage one another. If you're discouraged and you're downhearted, you come and you part, be part of the fellowship, you're going to go away strengthened and encouraged. Your brother can pray with you. Your sister can encourage you. We need each other. And there's where I think the big miss uh, happens when you're just watching church on, on the screen. You're, you're missing out on all of those that God had intended for you because God knew what he was saying when he said, don't avoid uh, forsake uh, the assembling together. He knew what he was saying because he knew he needed it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in the absence of a strong sense uh, and desire to return to the church, we need to look to what the scriptures have to say, because I've often found that obedience can be followed by feelings. You know, I might really appreciate what the scripture is telling me I need to do once I've walked in obedience and returning to the church, um, will remind us of, oh, this is why God calls us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, to be in fellowship um, with one another. Uh, are you making any major changes in uh, in the church as a result of this last year and a half and what that has done to the culture as well as to congregants? Well, of course, we had to make all of the changes that, that these guidelines put forth, you know, social distancing and sanitizing and all of those things that we've done. But we are now rolling back. Um, you know, even our now that we've moved away from the cafe tables and put sanctuary seats uh, back, they were still socially distant, you know, six feet rows. So now we're starting to move those back and uh, and do all of the things that... I think that uh, create a sense of normalcy. But now in our church, we've also tried to create a tremendous sense of family and and connection and fellowship by offering meals together. Actually, we in, before the pandemic, we would have dinners together every Wednesday night, every Saturday night, every Sunday night. These are before our, our weekly services on those nights. But there are opportunities opportunities for fellowship and connection and making friends and meeting new people. We haven't been able to start those back up again. And uh, so now we're, we're starting to make those plans. We think by, let's say, September, we ought to be fully back, you might say. So we've had to kind of accommodate slowly. Um, children's ministries, I'm noticing that families with children are the actually the slowest to come back. Um, the kids, you know, didn't didn't have opportunity for vaccines, and so mm-hmm. they were a lot more vulnerable. <clears throat> the, the kids with families with kids are the slowest to get back. You know who's the coming back fastest? Youth group. They huh. love what an example, right? They love fellowship. Yeah. They love connection. They love being together. The so youth group is exploding. 
because kids want to be with their friends and and worship together and study together and like it's it's feels a lot more normal in youth group, which is exciting. I love to see what God is doing in the youth group. Now we just need, I think, all of the families with children and the full families to come back. And so, as I say, I think it's going to be another year before we really see it back to what it was, you know, before all of this. It's going to change. I think, frankly, this has hurt the church in a tremendous way. Um, And it's going to take some time to rebuild it. But God is still on the throne, and God's going to rebuild it. He loves his church. It's his bride. And he's going to strengthen and edify it. So I have every confidence the church is definitely not done. It's going to Amen. get stronger and stronger because uh, the, the people still love the Lord. They just need to recognize the necessity of that fellowship that you said. Uh, it's even mandated in the scripture. So I think people recognize it more and more as time goes on. Absolutely. Well, Pastor Rich, thank you so much for your leadership in our community, and I thank you for taking the time to talk with us today about the church and um, how we're moving forward. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. God bless. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Dennis Prager, recently writing in a column, wrote the headline, Our New Religion is Staying Safe. And in light of my conversation with Pastor Jones, I thought this might be rather interesting. Prager writes, As many observers have noted, staying safe has become a religion. Safetyism, as it is sometimes called, like all religion, places what it values. Um, In this case, being safe, Above other values, safetyism explains the willingness of Americans to give up their most cherished values, including liberty, in the name of safety for the last year and a half. Millions of Americans not only gave up their right to go to work, earn a living, attend church or synagogue, visit friends and relatives, but they even gave up their right to visit dying relatives and friends. One can assume that nearly every person recorded as having died of COVID-19 died without having a single loved one at their bedside from the moment they entered a hospital until their death. The acceptance of such cruelty, irrational and unscientific cruelty, one might add, can only be explained by the failure of generations of schools and parents to teach liberty while successfully teaching the worship of safety. If your father had to die alone, it was worth it for the sake of safety. If your mother had to uh, be in what amounted to solitary confinement in a nursing home for more than a year, That, too, was worth it for the sake of safety. And, of course, if political leaders and leaders in science and medicine have to lie for the sake of safety, so be it. Truth, too, is less important than safety. None of this is new. Twenty-five years ago, I wrote and broadcast about the willingness of Americans to watch individual rights crushed in the war against smoking and especially in accepting the absurdity of the alleged lethal dangers of secondhand smoke. Uh, Continuing to quote from Dennis Prager, no one denies that intense exposure to secondhand smoke can exacerbate pre-existing illnesses such as asthma. But the anti-smoking zealots claim that 50,000 Americans die each year from exposure to secondhand smokes is nonsense. For example, in 2013, the Journal of the National Cancer Institute reported that there was no statistically significant relationship between lung cancer and exposure to passive smoke. Yet in the name of nonsensical 50,000 a year uh, claim, people were forbidden not only to smoke on airplanes 
which I'm grateful for, uh, which on uh, courtesy grounds alone was appropriate, but even in smoke shops in the city of Burbank, California, run for decades by leftists who, like all leftists, have contempt for personal liberty. Smoking is banned even in cigar shops, despite the fact that no one is forced to work in any cigar shop. And even if the shop is well ventilated, no smoking is permitted. Well, he goes on uh, from there. So the safety zealots learned from the anti-smoking and anti-secondhand smoke crusade the great lesson that if you told Americans something wasn't safe, you could deprive them of their rights and they would willingly go along with it. And for the record, this is equally true in virtually every country in the world. Safety, uber alles. Hmm. They didn't only learn this lesson from the anti-smoking fanatics for two generations now. Safety has increasingly deprived Americans of joys as well as freedoms. Children in particular have been so coddled that American children of the last two generations have probably had far less joy and far more fear than children of any previous generation. Young, think about that. When you think about World War II, you think about... Um, other wars that have been endured, the Depression and so on. Young children cannot take walks on their own, lest uh, child protective services be called. Diving boards, once found on nearly every home swimming pool, are widely banned. The monkey bars and seesaws have been removed from playgrounds. As an article on the Australian website Babyology headlined, monkey bars are dangerous and must be removed from playgrounds, experts say. Young people up to age 15 cannot fly without adult supervision by the airline. Why not? I flew alone from Miami to New York when I was seven years old, and no one thought my parents acted in any way irresponsibly. Two Norwegian scientists uh, from the, the Queen Maud University College of Early Childhood Education and the Norwegian University of Science and Technology wrote a study on children and risky play published in Evolutionary Psychology in which they concluded – we may observe an increased neuro, uh, neuroticism or psychopathology in society if children are hindered from partaking in age-adequate risky behavior or play. Uh, the desire to lead us uh, as safe a life as possible is a major factor that explains why fewer and fewer young Americans are getting married and even fewer are having children. Neither marriage uh, nor having children is safe. Both are filled with risks. Aside from the question of whether one can compare the happiness of two groups of people with entirely different experiences, would it be meaningful to say that most dogs are happier than human beings? Or even whether one can expect honest answers, how many people claim their choices in life made them unhappy? The article um, well illustrates the point of this column. Be safe would, be, would uh, certainly include not getting married and not having children. You can live a safe life. Or you can live a full life. You can't live both. By the way, he's referring to a headline of an article this past week on NBC's Today Show website. Child-free adults are just as happy as parents. Study finds. want to thank James Blend for producing today's program. Clark Hilton for engineering. Dan Rice for the use of his office. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.